Amen. Thank you, praise team. It was wonderful. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, the three in one. Beautiful, beautiful words and music today, and just wonderful to be in the house of God. I'm glad that you're here to worship with us. I want you to take your Bibles today to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to continue our series through the book of Mark. I'm going to cover verses 53 to 72 today, so it's quite a few verses, but I do want to take the time to read them Uh, from God's Word here today. So have your place in Mark 14. I've entitled the message, The Danger of Following at a Distance. The Danger of Following at a Distance. Stand with me now as we read God's Word. Verse 53. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together, and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And some standing up were giving false testimony against him, saying, We ourselves heard him say, I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this way was their testimony consistent. And the high priest stood up in their midst and questioned Jesus, saying, You answer nothing? What are these men testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And tearing his tunic, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with this Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him, she began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were saying again to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said the statement to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And throwing himself down, he began to cry. You may be seated. The danger of following... Jesus at a distance. That's the phrase that jumped out at me in my studies here because this is a comparison of two trials, the trial of Peter and the trial of Jesus. And it says in verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance. And that's the phrase that caught my attention. He followed him at a distance. Now, why did he do that? He was afraid. That's why he did that. That's why people follow Jesus at a distance. That's why they don't get too close to Jesus. They follow him at a distance because they're afraid. Now, the opposite of faith is fear. The opposite of faith is fear. And and the truth is, you need faith in the good times, and you need faith in the bad times. 
to actually believe the goodness of God is not going anywhere. To actually believe that. That the goodness of God is not going anywhere in your life. Good times, bad times. To silence the voices in your head that say, you can't do it. You can't make it. It's not going to work out the way you want. The truth is, we all have these voices that are in our head that say, you'll never make it. And sometimes what I think we need to do is we need to have a talk with ourselves. You need to talk with yourself about yourself and your fears. Because there's things in your head that keep you in fear. Something comes into your life like that or something happens over here and the next thing you know, your whole demeanor, your whole attitude is changed because these thoughts begin to fill your head. And so sometimes you just need to talk with yourself about yourself, about your fears. And I believe that is a very important thing to do. I was reading through the book of Mark again just to get my bearing for this passage of Scripture and the thought that came to me was the woman with the issue of blood. I noticed that the Bible says, it says specifically in Mark, which is really clever here, the woman kept saying to herself, she kept filling her mind with thoughts. Over and over, she kept putting these thoughts into her head, and pretty soon she believed these thoughts, that she acted on them. And the thought was, if I could just touch Jesus at the hem of his garment, I would be healed. Let me just say this, okay? There's no scripture reference for that. <laughs> There's no scripture reference. If you touch the hem of his garment, you'll be healed. All she did was put that thought in her head. She put this thought in her head and said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And the Bible says in Mark, over and over and over, she kept saying it to herself. She kept putting that thought into her head and said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know, I know I'll be healed. And so listen to this. Without Jesus' permission... Without the support of the disciples, she crept up on him and she snatched a miracle. She just snatched a miracle just like that. And God gave this woman a miracle because she put thoughts in her head that turned into faith that she believed, I know he can do it. She put these thoughts in her head and she believed those thoughts and she acted on those thoughts and she was healed this is an amazing thing she silenced the voices in her head you got some voices in your head i just want you to know that this morning you got some voices you said you can't do it you can't be that that's not going to happen in your life this ain't going to work out it's not going to go that way for you and you got these voices in your head, and sometimes you've got to get those voices out of your head, and you've got to get the right kind of voices in your head. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, because the enemy pulverizes the promises of God in your life. He wants to keep them out of your head. That's all he has to do is just keep it out of your head, where you don't believe it. You won't act on it. And I, I'm not preaching on the woman with the issue of blood. I wish I was, because uh, that's where my heart went when I was reading that. But when I transferred it to Peter... Peter let all the wrong voices in his head and he acted wrong because of it. He put all the wrong voices in his head and just let those voices be so strong he had no faith to counteract it. And that, that's, that's what struck me as I was reading Peter and this story today and that's kind of where I wanted to go. So I kind of outlined this message around this theme. What motivates a Christian 
to follow Christ at a distance. What motivates a Christian to follow Christ at a distance? All right, I've already kind of alluded to the first one, so I'm just going to jump into it. I put this in the, the plurality, we, 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 because I didn't want to pick on anybody specifically here today, so I kind of stay generic with this one. Just we, we're all going to be one big group together, okay, today, because we kind of all fit this group, but, but it's important that I'm not really trying to really go after anybody here today. I have no intent to do that. Number one, the reason we follow Christ at a distance is we are afraid. We are afraid. That's simple enough. Minutes ago, in this passage of Scripture, the Bible says in verse 50, they all left him. They all left him. And where did they go? They went into the darkness. All 12 of them went into the darkness and left Jesus. Now, the thing with Peter, though, is that's his Lord. And he told the Lord... I will go with you to your death. So he's got this idea in his head, I'm going to go with him to his death. I want to see what's going to happen to Jesus. Will he be okay? But at the same time he has this thought toward the loyalty to Jesus, he's also afraid. He's got these conflicting things going on. And so this is what I want to say to you today. If you forget everything else, remember this. Fear tells us to follow Jesus at a distance. Fear tells us to follow Jesus at a distance. Stay far enough away to avoid taking any heat to be associated with Jesus. That's what fear will tell you. Just, just stay far enough away. Follow him at a distance. Don't get too close to him so you don't have to take any heat. You don't have to take any heat. And he had a good idea what was going to happen to Jesus. The thought was in his head, it's no longer safe to be with Jesus. It's incredible, isn't it? You're going to need faith in good times. You're going to need it in bad times. Because you're going to have to come to a place where you believe the goodness of God is always there. And so Peter's thinking to himself, it's no longer safe to love and to be with Jesus. So Peter believes his first lie. Every time we start taking steps forward in our faith, sometimes thoughts go through our head this is a little too close for comfort with Jesus. I don't want to get too close to Jesus. A little too close. A little too close with Jesus. And a lot of the fear we experience is rooted in lies. The antidote of, to fear is believing the truth about God. Because the Bible says that. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's a beautiful verse. In other words, when you come to really believe the truth of the Word of God... It's like it lifts a load off of your back. It sets you free. Some of you are carrying loads right now because they're on your back and you feel the weight of those and they're weighting you down. It's because the truth hasn't set you free yet. You've got something that's weighing you down and the truth wants to set you free. But, but it's hard for you to do that because that means I actually have to believe that the goodness of God is there all the time in my life. So what lies are we believing that produce fear in our hearts to follow Jesus at a safe distance? Now, by contrast, to follow Jesus closely in a fallen world is to invite danger and persecution, and in some places, death. That's, that's the truth of that statement, all right? So sometimes when you get too close to Jesus, there is danger. There is persecution and may even be death. But Peter told Jesus... I'll follow you to your death. I will follow you to your death. But when the rubber meets the road, what Peter did was he followed Jesus to Jesus' death. 
and I'll just be an observer. This is what kept him from Jesus. I, I don't want to get too close to you because I see what's happening to you, and I don't want it to happen to me. And so he just wants to be an observer. Okay, I don't want to make a big point of this, but I just want to make an application for you. I want you to just think about this for your life. This is something worth reflecting on. How do you know if you're following him closely or at a safe distance in your life? Okay, here's one way, one way. Do the people you work with, do the people you go to school with, do the people you play with, do your friends, do they know you're a Christian? That's a simple test. Do they know you're a Christian? What unsaved person knows you're a Christian? If you had to name that right now, in your heart, what would you say? What unsaved person knows you are a Christian? I'm not saying make a pest of yourself, and I'm not saying wear your Christianity on your sleeve. I'm just asking you, where is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? If they don't know, perhaps, perhaps you're following at a safe distance. It's just a thought. Perhaps you're following at a safe distance. All right, number two, let's go on. Uh, not only are we afraid, but the other reason we'll follow Jesus from assistance is we desire to fit in with the crowd. We desire to fit in with the crowd. And the Bible says, Peter followed him at a distance in verse 54. He went right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now, I like this because Mark is playing off of uh, some uh, deeper concepts underneath the images of this. First of all, he said, I'll follow Jesus at a safe distance because it's safe. Well, where's the safest place in this situation? Around the crowd, around the fire. Okay, I'll, I'll get around the crowd, and I'll, uh, the crowd's a pretty safe place. Nobody really knows me. Nothing's being asked of me. I'll just get around the crowd, and look, oh, look, I can warm my hands at the fire. Okay, so not only am I safe now, but I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. I, I like the crowd. I like the crowd because the crowd makes me feel safe and makes me feel comfortable. This is the crowd I run with because the crowd I run with makes me feel comfortable and safe. And I can warm my hands at the fire with it. I kind of like this setup, and this is, this is who I want to be. And so there he is warming his hands at the fire, and I'll, his thought is, I'll just kind of hang out in the crowd here. No one knows who I am, and I'm safe here. That's why people like the crowds, because the crowds make you feel safe. Like, right now you're in a crowd. You're here in a crowd with us at this church service because you know I'm not going to come down there and look you right in the face and say, you know, you're the worst sinner in this church. You know that's not going to happen, right? And you know I'm not going to come in and, and kind of embarrass you in this service. And you came in so you weren't noticed. You came in so you just kind of came in to watch the service because, you know, that's what you like about a crowd. A crowd is kind of a safe place, and I'm kind of safe here. It's easy to fit in with the crowd. It's easy. It's easy. Sometimes it's scary to move beyond the crowd. That's what's scary. To move beyond the crowd. How do you move beyond the crowd? Well, you go from the crowd into community. That's scary. To move away from the crowd is scary to me because now I'm beyond the crowd and I'm in a community. But in the crowd, we believe we're safe, we're anonymous. Well, you don't have to worry about anything here in this crowd today, do you? You're anonymous. Nobody expects anything of you. You don't have to get up and say anything. You don't have to do anything. You're spectators. You're spectators. You came in because the crowd's a safe place. You just got to watch me preach. You just got to listen to me, and, and you go out and say, well, that, that was good. Uh, you just observe. 
That's what's so attractive about a crowd as opposed to a community. Community is a little more scary. Now, let me just say this about Triad Baptist Church, okay? Triad Baptist Church is not a crowd. It's a community. And if you're only here for the crowd, you're missing the whole point of why he created the church. It's to be in community. I know, I know, there, there is fear, and that's why you say at a safe distance, that's why you want the crowd, you don't want the community, because the fear is if I get in this community, they might know me, or worse yet, they might judge me. And I don't want anybody judging me. I've been judged enough in my life. So, the crowd is a safer place to be, and I don't want people to get too close. I don't want people to see me in a different light. What, what if they don't accept me and it doesn't go well? Yeah, there it is. There it is. It's in a nutshell for your life. It's a risk. It's a risk to put myself out there. If I get in a connect group, what if I got in a connect group? What if they actually know my opinions and feelings on things? I want my feelings to be known. I want my opinions to be known. But what if they knew that and they didn't like that? What if they didn't accept me for who I was? See, that's the risk. That's the risk. But we really are a community. We're not a crowd. This is the crowd, but that's not who we are. That's why you got to have community in your life because there's something that says stay at a safe distance and just get around the crowd. Get around the crowd. Yes, it's a risk. That's why we have connect groups. That's why we have Sunday school groups. That's why we meet like that because there is a place where we believe that you want to be known and in being known, you want to be connected and in being connected, there's some vulnerability required by that. Peter didn't want to risk that. If they kill him, they'll probably come after me if I connect too close to him. I'll just warm myself at the fire and hide with the crowd rather than take the real heat. Rather than take the real heat. Okay, so that's another reason we, we desire to fit in with the crowd. Number three, we lose sight of our high calling. This is probably the most important one for me, but uh, it's because he's doing a comparison here. He's going to do a comparison of the trial of Jesus. This is what Mark's incredible for. And he's, he's the only one who does this, and then he's going to compare it to the trial of Peter. Two trials are going on at the same time. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. Peter's the only one that says, I've got to follow Jesus to find out what happens to him. I'm going to follow him at a distance. But Peter has lost sight of his high calling, unlike the high calling of Jesus Christ, which is absolutely amazing here. Jesus comes under incredible pressure at this present time. They arrest him in the garden, and they whisk him a little over a half a mile away. Now, I just want to show you a little drawing. I don't know how well you can see it in the back there, but if you can see it, uh, up to the right-hand side is the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where they arrested Jesus. Now, to get from there to the temple is little less than a quarter of a mile. It's a little less than a quarter of a mile. Now, technically, that's where they should have gone is to the temple for the trial. But they don't go to the temple for the trial. Let me just show you where they should have gone. Let me go to the next picture. Where they should have gone is to the Chamber of Hewn Stone. And, and uh, I'm showing you this picture because some of you didn't get to go to Israel. You're supposed to be in Israel today, so you're getting a little tour right now with the pictures and everything, okay? This is the Chamber of Hewn. I know that's a real disappointing fact. But the Chamber of Hewn Stone is right next to the temple, and this is where the Sanhedrin court of 70 people and the most highest ruler in Israel, Caiaphas, would, would do their trials on people. Okay, that's where they were supposed to go at 2 a.m. in the morning. But they didn't go there at 2 a.m. in the morning. Where they went was to Caiaphas's palace. We call it his palace, but it's really his house. This is his house. I just want to show you a rendering of this. We don't have it. It was destroyed from that day, and you can't see it. 
But uh, this is where he lived. This is where Caiaphas lived. Pretty nice little, uh, little pad right there. But it was huge. It's absolutely huge. He had everything he could possibly want. He had all types of servants. He's like the governor of North Carolina. He's like the president of the United States. He is the man, and he's got everything. This is where they whisk him away. It's a little over a half a mile away. So they go under these tunnels. They have these tunnels all under Jerusalem if you ever go there. Uh, some of you are going to be able to go there, some of you who want to go. But you, you go under these tunnels for about a half mile, and you can secretly come to the house of Caiaphas, and then you can secretly get to the temple. It's incredible to see, and this is what they did with Jesus. They want to keep him out of view. They didn't want people to know what was going on. All this is secret because they got to get him with capital offense. They got to get him something they can kill him on, and they don't got nothing yet. And it's six hours from the crucifixion, so they got six hours to work with here from about 3 a.m. in the morning till six or till 9 a.m. on Friday. And so they get him to Caiaphas's house, and I want to show you one more thing that we do have a record of, and you can see this when you go to Israel. And this is underneath his house. This wasn't destroyed. This is a prison. This is where Jesus stayed from 3 a.m. to about 6 to 7 a.m. the next morning. They put him in a prison for the night after they questioned him in Caiaphas' house, which is right under Caiaphas' house. Okay, so it's 2 a.m. in the morning, 3 a.m. in the morning, right around there. And even against the law, which said you can't have trials at night, they do it anyways. This is not a truth-seeking mission to gather facts about Jesus. They are intentionally trying to find something that would convict Jesus of capital offense that he's guilty of. I just want to say it this way. It's a witch hunt. It's a kangaroo court. They're going to trump up charges to have this man murdered and killed. The Bible says in verse 56 to 59, the witnesses could not even agree. And the law said that two or three witnesses had to agree to condemn a man, but not one of them agreed. That's what the Bible says. And not only did they not agree, they didn't even quote Jesus correctly. I'm not going to take the time to develop that for you, but they didn't even quote Jesus correctly. So Caiaphas, after this interrogation with these witnesses, Caiaphas gets agitated and he said, won't you answer anything? Won't you say anything? He says in verse 60, he stood up in the midst and questioned Jesus saying, you answer nothing? What are these men testifying against you? He wouldn't say anything. Caiaphas is getting irritated because he knows he's got to get the witness, Jesus, to talk in order to catch him in his own words, but he can't get Jesus to talk. So the Bible says in verse 61, but he kept silent and did not answer. Now, you have to ask yourself, when you get accused of something, what do you do? If your wife accuses you of something or your husband accuses you of something, you know what you're quick to do? You're quick to deny. I never did that. That didn't happen. No, that's not right. There's something in us that we're very defensive when people accuse us of things. What's amazing here is, first of all, Jesus did not say anything to their accusations. He just kept quiet. And, and you have to note that. I'll, I'll bring that out later, except to say this right now so that you understand it. One of the reasons he didn't say anything is because right in the middle of his high calling, the prophecy said he had to keep quiet. Jesus was about fulfilling every prophecy. And here, he keeps the prophecy exactly like it said it would happen. He kept silent here. The high priest says, speak up, Jesus! Answer these charges. But all he could think of was Isaiah 53, 7. As a sheep before its shearers is silent. 
as a lamb before the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He realized he was being slaughtered like a lamb. And he didn't say a word. Caiaphas is completely exasperated by this. He, he just is so fed up, he can't get Jesus to talk. And so finally, he gets to the point and he says, let me just get to the bottom of this. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Messiah is the word in Hebrew. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? What he's saying there is, are you holy God? But he, he wouldn't bring himself to say the words holy God. So they had a phrase they used in those days. Are you the blessed one? Because they didn't want to say the word Yahweh or Jehovah, or they didn't want to say the word I am. So they would come up with a phrase, are you the blessed one? And Jesus, these two questions are so key. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? In other words, are you God? Now Jesus, to this point, has been overly secretive about his mission. He's been telling people left and right, don't say anything. Don't tell them I'm Messiah. Don't tell them I'm God. Don't, don't tell nobody. Just keep it quiet. Now, most of them didn't keep it quiet, but he kept telling that to his close associates. Don't say anything because he knew that if they would have taken him too soon, they would have hailed him as a king and they would have set up his kingdom. But that wasn't his plan. That's not why he came the first time. So he kept holding off and holding off and holding off until this exact moment in time. And then he looks at Caiaphas and he says to him, I am. The word that Caiaphas wouldn't even say. I am. Jehovah is the word. Yahweh. I am he. I am God. That's what he's saying. I am God. That's the sacred name for God in the Bible. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the perfect, innocent human being. God in the flesh. And then Jesus says, let me add to that. I am God. And you will see the Son of Man at the right hand of God. I've come from heaven, I'm going back to heaven. And then I will return and I will judge the entire earth. I will judge the entire earth. Yes, Caiaphas, I am God. I am the Son of Man. And this is not the last time you will see me. I stand in trial before you, but one day you will stand in trial before me with all the power and authority and I will judge you. I will judge you, Caiaphas. That's exactly what he's saying there. You will be judged by me, Caiaphas, and no other. Now, in verse 63, Caiaphas rips his tunic. He rips his high priest's clothes, which is illegal to do in their culture, but he's, he, let me just put it in our culture. He blows a gasket. That's what he does. He gets so mad, he rips the most sacred vestige he has, and he rips it apart and blows a gasket. He is so mad when this happens. He's overcome with rage and anger. And he looks at all his Sanhedrin, all of the rulers of Israel, and he says, did you hear what he said? Blasphemy. He says he's God. We don't need any witnesses. We've heard it with our own mouth. What do you all say? And they're just kind of, here, here, here. Yes, he's guilty. He's guilty. He's guilty. All of them agree at one moment of time he's worthy of death. And that's the end of the trial. And the Bible says, Verse 65, what a, what a sad verse. And then what'd they do? Okay, he's guilty. And some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Now, why'd they do that? 
Why'd they beat him in the face? Why'd they give him slaps? Why'd they spit at him? What would you do if somebody spit at you? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't the natural reaction be to block your face like this if somebody's going to spit at you? For some of you, the natural reaction would be go and deck them, right? You'd say, oh, yeah, you know, I may be older, but, man, I can take you still. I can handle this. That's what you do if somebody spit you in the face. I mean, I, I can't even remember the last time I was spit in the face. It'd have to be when I was a little kid, uh, a real little kid, because I can't even hardly remember any memory of being spit in the face. But I can't think of anything more humiliating than being spit in the face by somebody. Why, why did he just sit there? Why did he let him? He just let him spit him in the face. It's because he's fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 50, verse 5 and verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheek to those who smite me. I did not hide my face from dishonor and spitting. Man, if somebody spits at me, I'm going to cover up my face and then I'm going at them. That's what, that's what I would want to do if I was in that situation. But Isaiah, the servant of the Lord, he says, the servant of the Lord will not do it. The servant of the Lord will take it. He will take it to his face. He won't fight it. He'll just let you spit on him. Jesus took it. He accepted it. He accepted it from their hands as if he was the sinner going to the cross for their sin. He's accepting everything a person would deserve if they should be spit in the face. And he's taking it saying, I'll carry that. I'll carry that to the cross. Isaiah 11.3, He will delight in the fear of Yahweh, and he will not judge by what his eyes see. That was a prophecy of a prophet. If you were truly a prophet, and they didn't know if they doubted your word or not, they would blindfold you, and then they would punch you in the face, and then you would have to prophesy who hit you in the face. That's what they're doing here. But he's fulfilling prophecy by letting this happen. They blindfold him and then they hit him in the face. Tell us who hit you. Prophesy. Tell us who hit you. And you know he knew who hit him. But he'd never say a word. At least not yet. At least not yet. I was thinking in my own mind, I wonder if at the great white throne judgment, if those people said, yeah, you were the one, Philip. You, you're the one who hit me in the face that day. Wouldn't that be a sick feeling? But Jesus knew, but he's not saying anything. He's just taking it. He's just taking it. Because it's because it's his high calling. He so knows the scripture, he wants to live that out. That's what he's about. He's about the high calling that he has for the Father. This is what Peter lost. Peter lost a sense of a high calling. He lost a sense of who he was and what he was called to do. And so he said, I better play it safe. I better play it safe. Jesus didn't say anything. He just took it. Now, I want you to just hear this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this is the first moment Jesus begins to shed blood for us. This is the first time. He begins to shed blood, the first public moment. He literally is moving toward the cross, and he orchestrated everything to be slapped and beat and hit in the face. He just took it. That's a high calling. I don't know where you get that from, but you've got to get it from the Word. Number four, let me go on to number four. Uh, what, what is the 
fourth reason that we follow Jesus at a distance because we take the easy way out. We take the easy way out. And this, this is what I want you to see, okay? This is bringing it all together now. Okay, so you got Jesus' trial going on at 3 in the morning, and you got Peter in the courtyard about, courtyard about to go on trial from 3 to 6. The first rooster crows at 3 a.m. The second rooster crows at 6 a.m., right as the sun's coming up. Okay, just so you know that in the context. All right, so Peter is in the courtyard about to go into trial, and he's got no presiding officials, no high priest questioning him. The Bible says he's got a servant girl. Now, the word servant girl in the Greek is a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> His Caiaphas is a 14-year-old girl in middle school, if I got that right. Okay, so she's like a, a middle school girl, and she is now conducting the investigation over Peter. She has no status. She has no power. She looks at Peter, and she says, you are with, you are with Jesus of Nazarene. And he denies it. I don't know the man. Lie number one. Then Peter, the Bible says in verse 68, goes out into the porch area. He goes out, he leaves the fire, the little girl's there, the little 14-year-old girl's there, and he leaves her because she's getting put a little too much pressure, too much pressure on me. So he goes out to the open area where you're at the edge of the courtyard of Caiaphas' palace. And while he's there, he's now... He's now kind of in a greater position of safety. He's a little further from Jesus, but he's safer. That's what you want to do. You want to get a little safer. You've got to get a little further from Jesus. And he flees the servant girl, and the rooster crows. The servant girl's been sitting over at the fire, and she's still eyeing him. She's looking over at him, and she can't help it. She goes over and says, you're one of them. You're one of them. And he denies it again. I don't know the man. Lie number two. Line number two. And then a bystander, a nobody. Verse 70, a nobody, a nobody. Hey, come on, man. You're a Galilean. You're talking like a Galilean. Now, in their culture, the Galileans had kind of a hillbilly accent, okay? And the Judeans, uh, they were the city people, the city folk, okay? And the ones who were from Galilee, they always called hillbillies. They didn't call them hillbillies. They called them Galileans. That was, their, that was their way to mock somebody from Galilee. And they said, you sound like a Galilean. You got an accent like a Galilean. You ain't from around here. You were with him. You traveled with Jesus. And then the Bible says he began to curse and to swear. Began to curse and swear. Now you put this in context. You got two trials, okay? You got Jesus' trial and you got Peter's trial going on at the same time, three to six in the morning. Right? What do you got, Jesus? Silence. Silence. Truth. I am. I am. You got Peter. Lie. Lie. Curse and swear at my Savior. Silence, silence, truth. Lie, lie, curse and swear at my Savior. It's an amazing thing. The comparison of the two is so clear that these two are both on trial. And Jesus is showing his high calling. And Peter's getting as far away from Jesus as he can. It's an amazing thing how culture works, but this is how culture works. Jesus tells the truth, and he's condemned. 
Peter lies, and he's set free. There's culture. Lie will set you free. Truth, you're condemned. You see that contrast, how culture will work with us? It's easier to lie in this culture. And to speak the truth. Now, when I've read this, I've always preached it like this. It's like Peter saying, I don't blankety-blank know the man. That's not the way it's to be understood. But I've preached it that way for years. And I just want you to understand this. This is not somebody swearing. Those are not words. They don't, they don't say swear. Now, you know swear words, okay? I don't have to go into this piece here. But you know swear words. This is not what he's doing. He's not coming up with the choice swear words that we come up with when we get really, really mad. Okay? Not us, not the people trying. No, the people out there, okay? They come up with those words, all right? So let's just say they, 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 they are not swear words like you understand swear words, okay? A curse in the Bible is not a swear word like today. It's a formula. It's a formula. In other words, you come up with a formula that would have been well known, something like this. May I rot in hell if I'm not telling the truth. That's a formula of curse, May I rot in hell if I'm not telling the truth. I don't know the man. That's a curse. In other words, if I'm lying, this curse should fall on me. I should rot in hell. You ever done that? You ever said this? I swear to God. That's the other one. It's an oath. To swear something is an oath. It's not just swearing like you and I think of swearing, but it's like saying something like this. I swear before God and his angels, I speak the truth. I don't know the man. Like you go to court and you say, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help me God. Yes, I do. So I've never gone into court and have never not told the truth. I've been in court several times and I've never not told the truth because there's something about that that when you're under the authority of God, you know you're speaking and representing God at that moment in the courthouse. And so that's what he's doing here. He's saying, I swear to God, I don't know the man. I take a curse, an oath of curse, that, that I should rot in hell forever if I do that. If I know the man. I don't know the man. I'm telling you, that's, that's what he's doing. And the evidence in the first century is overwhelming on this, written by Justin Martyr, a pastor and apologist at this time in the first century, shortly after Jesus. When the Jews would persecute the Christians, they used to, in the early days, they would just kill them. If you were a Jew and you converted to Christianity, they just killed you. But then they got a little smarter about this thing, and they realized they could use that to their advantage. And so what they said is, if somebody became a Christian and was a Jew, because predominantly it was all Jewish people that were becoming Christians, they gave them an option. We'll give you an option. You can either be put to death, or if you'll take a swear... Or if you'll take an oath curse against Jesus Christ, we'll let you go free. That's very clever. Because what they knew is a true Christian could never curse the name of Jesus. And they could never get themselves to swear that Jesus was not Lord. And so if they could get them to swear that Jesus was not Lord, then they'd let him go free. Because then they knew when they went free, they probably really weren't a Christian anyways. Because a true Christian would hold his word. <laughs> but
But they also knew perhaps, perhaps a real Christian would deny Jesus Christ because everything that a man hath he'll give for his life, Satan said. And a man will do anything to live. He'll give his last dime to keep his health going. He'll spend thousands of dollars to stay healthy. Satan wasn't too far off the mark, and, and he said, a man will give all that he has for his life. And so he even thinks that Christians will curse God in order to stay alive. And so that's what the Jew thought. They were in their twisted mindset. They thought, maybe by chance a Christian would take an oath of cursing against Christ, and that's all the better for us than killing him. Let's not kill him. Now we make him a hero, a martyr. Let's keep him alive, but now he has a lousy testimony because who's going to believe him? He reneged on Christ. And they found that far more powerful than putting the man to death. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It's so corrupt. It's so cruel. But it worked. It worked. And that's kind of what's behind this. Uh, the denouncing of faith with a curse would let them go. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because this is how low Peter got. This is how low Peter got. I curse Christ to my face. I curse Christ. How low can somebody get? Pretty low. Jesus was convicted of blasphemy, but Peter is doing the blasphemy. That's the point of the text. Jesus is convicted of blasphemy, but Peter's doing the blasphemy. And the rooster crows. And the rooster crows. And Peter remembered the prophecy that he would deny him three times, and he denied him three times. And he gave thought to what he did, and he went out and he began to weep bitterly. I messed up so bad. I cursed God in an oath. I betrayed him. I sold him out like Judas. And he did. He sold out Jesus. Let me just say this. I, I just want you to see this kind of as I wrap this up here. The beauty of owning our mistakes paves the way to repentance. It's not all that's involved in repentance, but it paves the way. The beauty of owning our mistakes paves the way for repentance. Fear is no match for a repentant heart. Fear is no match for a repentant heart. And that's what Peter was going to have to go through, this process of repentance, because we all need ongoing repentance in our life. We have a flesh that pulls us to do things that are against God. You never, you never cross some line in your Christian life and say, man, I got it together. <laughs> no. No, you never do. You never do. The, the Christian life is a continual life of repentance. You recognize it, you grieve over it, you own it, and then you ask God for forgiveness. You ask God for forgiveness. What I've learned in studying Peter is we don't really do well with guilt when we're in a crowd. The Bible says in Luke, he went out and wept bitterly. You know why he went out? Because when people want to weep over their guilt, they want to be alone. It's true for me. It's true for you. When we really get to that place of repentance, it's usually at night with our head on the pillow. 
and our conscience is freed. And at that moment in time, then God speaks. We don't want to be around nobody. We just want to be alone. And the weight of guilt comes on us when we're alone. It's an incredible, it's an incredible experience. And the truth of the matter is, all your defensive gestures are removed and you're left alone there with God. And then the truth of God pierces your conscience. Here's what I want to say to you. If that happens to you, and it will, it's a gift. It's a gift. Because it's a gift that leads you to repentance. And when you take that and you give it to God and you say, God, I am sorry. I have messed up. I have screwed up. God says, I will take it and I will cleanse it from all unrighteousness. You confess it, I cleanse it from all unrighteousness. Now, the reason that doesn't work for some of you, and I know it doesn't work for some of you, is because you've got a higher standard than God does. Your standard's up here that if I was a decent human being and I was who I said I was, I would have never done that, and you won't forgive yourself. It has nothing to do with God. It has to do with you're making yourself God. And so you got yourself up here saying, I can't allow myself to be forgiven. I've got to pay the rest of my life for what I've done. And the truth is you don't, but you still believe it no matter what this preacher says. But you've got to come to your place where you really say, if I confess it, he will cleanse me from all unrighteousness. you either got to believe that by faith or you've got to put those silly, stupid lies in your head that are killing you. They're destroying your life because you can't get those thoughts out. And so you're putting yourself at a higher standard than God does. You've got to learn to free yourself from yourself by getting those right thoughts in your head that allow you to operate in faith. Or you're going to be one miserable Christian. Okay, I don't know what else to say. Let's pray. There will be a time in your life, every one of you in this room, when the moment of truth will come for you. And you're going to have to stand up and be counted. And you're going to have to say to someone, someone in this world, I belong to Jesus. And my prayer for you is you'll be faithful. Lord, I just want to pray over myself and all of these here. Lord, forgive us when we search for safety and comfort more than faithfulness to you. Thank you that the goodness of God hasn't changed. <laughs> low as we get, as low as Peter got, your goodness is still there. Lord, help us to fill ourselves with these thoughts today. Not to believe the lies, but with the thoughts that you've given us. That we can go away free. Because if you said it, the truth shall set us free. Somebody needs to be freed today. They've been putting themselves at a higher standard than you. They've been making themselves pay. 
things that happened in their life. God, free them today. Free them. No matter how low they got, whatever they chose, free them in their walk with you. God, I lift up each one in here today. We need that blessing on us. We need to fill our thoughts with that. May we go forth free, feeling the weight lifted off of our backs. God, I pray for that now. I lay it before you for your glory and honor. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to sing and lead us. We don't have the benches out here today, but if you've got something you want to bring to the altar, you want to pray over, something God's speaking to you about, you can just come to the front of the stage there and just pray there. But let God speak to your heart today. Let's, let's sing together with the team.